This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God and worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. Message is from the best known verse of the Bible. This verse is seen at sporting events, it's even found at the bottom of cups that serves soft drinks from In-N-Out Burger, a chain that's making its way this direction. It's found on the bags when you purchase something at Forever 21. And it's the most memorized passage of Scripture. Some theologians go as far to say that it gives a concise summary of every major doctrine found in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The four with which this verse begins calls for a bit of explanation. The four could also be translated as because and read in that way because God so loved the world it means that it's explaining something. It's giving us a rationale, a reason. And what's being explained is found in the verses that precede verse 16. Verse 13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now he's referring, of course, to himself. He's speaking with Nicodemus during a a midnight conversation that this leader of the Pharisees requested And Nicodemus has been asking, okay, who are you? And and are you bringing the kingdom of heaven? Jesus has said things that are hard for Nicodemus to wrap his mind around. So Jesus says, you can't understand these things because you can't reach up to heaven to bring them down. The only way you can know this is if someone from heaven comes down to explain them to you. To show them to you. To demonstrate what I'm talking about. Jesus, of course, is referring to himself, which brings us to the question, why would Jesus leave the glories of heaven to walk on the ground of this earth? Many ways it doesn't make sense. Think of it, if you would, like this, okay? This is an illustration that helps me. So I go to the game of Monopoly. It's a game my family won't play with me very much because of what we refer to as the Monopoly incident that took place about eight years ago. Forgive me, Sue. Think about it like this. If you're familiar with the game, you know that the two primary pieces of property you want to own are Boardwalk and Park Place. If you own those, you've pretty much you've got control of the game. And of course, the properties that are not as in great a demand are, are Baltic and Mediterranean Avenue and so on there right after go. So suppose this, okay, picture this. The game of Monopoly's been going great for you. You own Park Place and Boardwalk. Not only do you own them, you've got hotels on them. Somebody lands there, oh, they're yours. <laughs> now you see why they won't play with me. And then all of a sudden, you make an offer to the person, the poor soul who owns Baltic Avenue. 
And you say, I'll trade you straight up boardwalk with all the hotels and you give me Baltic Avenue. See, that doesn't make any sense. Now you're starting to wrestle with the incarnation. Why would Jesus give up the glories of heaven to walk here? That's what he begins answering in verse 16. Why would Jesus do that? The second question that is being answered by verse 16 is found in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, to understand this, you have to dive into the Old Testament just a bit. In the book of Numbers, it's recorded how Israel was wandering in the desert because of their sin. They were somewhere between Egypt that was behind them and the promised land in front of them. And they were struggling. They were doubting God. And they had rose up in rebellion against God. So God sent a plague upon them to get their attention, to call them to repentance. Snakes. Probably the only way that I'm ever like Indiana Jones is a fear of snakes. Don't like them. And so serpents are among Israel, and they're being bitten, and they're dying. And so they're starting to call out to the Lord. And, and God says, Moses, if you will fashion a bronze serpent and place it on a pole, if people will look to it believing, they'll be healed. By the way, if you ever see the emblem of the medical profession with a snake on it, now you know why. It's a symbol of healing. Now, that seems very odd, and of course, God is true to his word. Those who looked up at the bronze serpent on the pole were healed. And it's a reminder to us that our problem was also Israel's problem, that of sin. So Jesus says here in verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus has drawn this comparison. As this serpent was lifted up, so Jesus will be lifted up, so that everyone that looks to him will be delivered. Now, looking at this through the lens of the New Testament, we begin to understand. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians that he who, who, he who knew no sin became sin. So on the cross, Jesus became our sin. So just as Israel looked upon the thing that was causing their problem in numbers, Jesus is saying, when you look to me on the cross and you see your sin there and you believe, you will be delivered from the power of that sin. That brings us back to the question of why. Why would he who is life willingly die? Why would the one who is beauty, joy, and peace willingly become ugliness, grief, and chaos? Verse 16 gives us the answer. Because God loved the world. You see, the solution to our quandary is found in the love of God. It is the love of God that is the, the root of our salvation. It is the, the love of God that is the bloodstream of the body of Christ. And it's such love that we are longing for today. We're still not sure how to define it. We hunger for love, but we're confused about what it looks like. A group of children were once asked this question. What does love mean? Here are some of their answers. Rebecca, who is eight years old, said, Well, love means, it's, it's like when, when my grandmother got arthritis... 
She couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time. Even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Billy, who's four years old, answered the question about love by saying, Well, when, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Bobby, who is seven, said this. Love is what's in the room at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Bobby was pretty smart. Nikki, who is age six, is a bit of a budding philosopher and theologian because Nika said, if you want to learn to love better, you should start with someone you hate. Ouch. And Tommy, who is age six, said this. Love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. <laughs> you know, in the Hebrew language, I understand that there's one word for love that encompasses both feeling and action because love involves both. In the Greek language, love had four words to express different nuances. Three of those words are found in the New Testament. There's eros, which speaks of desire, passion. Philos, which speaks of friendship. And agape, a loyal, sacrificial, faithful, and merciful love. I really believe hard and fast walls should not be built between these words because they overlap. But I think they coalesce into the one word for love that is used here, agape. It's amazing that God's faithful, merciful, compassionate love is directed toward the world. When you look at the verse, for God so loved the world, that's the word cosmos. It means order, literally, totality. And it came over time to refer to the world. But in John, keep this in mind, in God's, God, John's gospel, as well as his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the word world is not neutral. In fact, world has a negative connotation. For example, in John chapter 1, verse 10, John tells us the world, it didn't know Jesus. John 7, 7, we're told, in fact, the world hates Jesus. John 14, 30, Jesus said that this world is ruled by the evil one. Yet that's the world God loved. God loved this fallen order. The world is in rebellion against him, yet he loves the world. We reject his love, yet he loves us anyway. I love how D.A. Carson, the professor at Trinity Evangelical Seminary, described it. That how God loves us despite our imperfections. Draw this picture in your mind, Dr. Carson said, of a couple by the name of Charles and Susan, let's say. And they're walking down a beach hand in hand. They've, they've kicked off their sandals. They're letting the, the wet sand squish between their toes. And all of a sudden, as the sun is setting on the horizon, Charles turns to Susan. He gazes deeply at her eyes. And he says, Susan, I love you. I really do. You can do it. Aww. But what does he mean when he says that? That's a question only a preacher would ask, isn't it? What does he mean? Well, this day and age, he may mean nothing more than, well, he's attracted to her. But let's assume the best for a moment. Let's assume that, that 
Charles means something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile knocks me off my feet. Your sparkling good humor, your beautiful eyes, the, even the, the smell of your hair, everything about you transfixes me. I love you. We would say, that's, that's, I can live with that's good. But we can say with confidence that when Charles looks at Susan and says, I love you, he does not mean this. Susan, quite, quite frankly, you have such a bad case of halitosis, it would embarrass a herd of unwashed garlic-eating elephants. Your nose is so bulbous, you belong in the cartoons. Your hair is so greasy, it could lubricate an 18-wheeler. Your knees are so disjointed, you make a camel look elegant. Your personality makes Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan look like wimps. But I love you. Okay. Now, keep that in mind and think of this. God so loved the world. So does God mean something like this? I love you. You mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your personality and your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you transfixes me. Heaven would be boring without you. I love you. Now, that's the, the idea of the love of God that many have. However, we have to be very honest with ourselves. And recognize that when God says, I love you, God probably means something like this. Morally speaking, you are the people of the halitosis, the bulbous nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knees, the abominable personality. Your sins have made you disgustingly ugly. But I love you anyway. Not because you are attractive, but because it is in my nature to love. You see, God's love does not overlook our sins and it is not born out of a need that God has. It's who God is. And that's why it says that God so loved this fallen, rebellious world that He gave. Now that's the language of sacrifice. It's the language used in Genesis 22 when Abraham laid his son Isaac on the altar. Now, some have pushed this imagery too far and have even accused God of cosmic child abuse. In giving Jesus. But I would remind you also that Jesus came willingly. He even said, no one takes my life from me. I give it willingly. Jesus came from heaven willingly and laid down his life. What is being emphasized is the sacrificial nature of the gift. And how God initiated it. You see, that's where the so comes into play. That word so means in this way. So you could understand it as this. For God loved the world in this way. How did God love the world? By giving Jesus. And he gave his only son, his unique son. The word is monogeneous. Unique. No one like him. You see, we are all children of God when we are saved. But we're not like Jesus. He's the unique son of God for he is fully divine. And notice that God gave so that whoever believes in him. The radical nature of that whoever is often lost on us. It's shockingly radical. In the second century, that would be the 100s, there was a philosopher by the name of Celsus. He was an atheist. And he couldn't understand Christianity. Celsus wrote in the second century an attack on the followers of Christ. 
And he wrote these words. He said, those who summon people to other religions make this proclamation. Whoever has pure hands and a wise tongue. And others say, whosoever is pure from all defilement and whose soul knows nothing of evil and who has lived well and righteously. Such are the exhortations of other religions that call people to join them. Now, what Celsus is saying that all these other religions, they say, if you've got your act together, if you're morally pure, you come and join us. But listen to what he says now, what he writes. Celsus says, but let us hear what folk these Christians call. Whosoever is a sinner, whosoever is unwise, whosoever is a child, and in a word, whoever is a wretch, the kingdom of God will receive him. Do you not say that a sinner is he who is dishonest, a thief, a burglar, a poisoner, a sacrilegious fellow, and a grave robber? What others would a robber invite and call? Why on earth this preference for sinners? That's the gospel. Whosoever will. You don't have your act together. Come on, you'll fit right in. That's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to have a 4.0 GPA or the right DNA. You don't have to be from the right side of the tracks or even the wrong side of the tracks. You don't have to have it all together or even act like you've got it all together. God loves you. And Jesus came so that your sins could be forgiven through faith and you can have a relationship with God. But that's the thing. It's believing. He says, whoever believes in him, whoever can, comes to him and believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Believing means that you are staking everything in your life and your life in the hereafter on Jesus. That he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead three days later. I think a good example of what belief means is this. At the end of chapter 6 in the Gospel of John, Jesus has made a very strong statement he said my flesh is life and those who eat of my flesh will find eternal life that was shocking then even as it's shocking now and people began to leave there were people who have been following Jesus that said that's crazy I'm out of here and so they began leaving and when a very it's, it's a very poignant moment Jesus looks at the disciples as people are leaving now and he says to them, do you want to go away as well? Will you leave me? Peter looks at the Lord and says, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of life. Where would we go? Your life. Peter is saying no matter the circumstances, Jesus is still the Christ. Even when the pantry is bare and there's no work to be found, belief says I will still hold that Jesus is my Savior. Belief means that when health leaves me and my body is wasting away, I will still believe that Jesus is my Savior. When the world calls me a fool and I'm forsaken by those I thought were friends, I will still believe that Jesus is my Savior. That's saving faith. And the result of saving faith is eternal life. Eternal. That speaks not only of quantity, of forever life. It speaks of quality life. Jesus said, in me you have life. I've come to give life, joy, peace, love, gentleness, all the things we long for. 
But in this verse, it also points out the consequences of not believing. Whoever believes in him should not perish. The inverse of that is also true. Whoever does not believe in him will perish. It's a word for destruction. Death. Jesus is putting a decision before us even in these words. Believe and have life. Reject and there is death. See, Christmas, behind all the songs, the celebrations, calls for a choice. Will you believe? We are emphasizing the offering for Lottie Moon for international missions. Lottie Moon was, of course, not the only missionary to go out. One of the fathers of mission work in the North American continent is a man by the name of Adonai Judson. But before Adonai Judson became a missionary to India and Burma, he was a rebel. He had rejected his father's faith, the faith that he had grown up, grown up with. He'd gone to New York City to seek fame and fortune as an actor and a writer. This is in the 1800s. He believed that his education had taken him such beyond primitive notions of a Savior coming to die for us. But by the age of 20, Adonai didn't feel right about his life, and he decided to head back home to Plymouth, Massachusetts. So he stopped for a stay in an inn overnight. During that night, Adonai had trouble sleeping. The man in the next room was obviously ill and filled the night with cries of pain and agony. And while he couldn't sleep, Adonai lay on his bed just thinking about the possibilities of death and whether he was prepared for it. And he began to think about coming back to his Christian faith. But then he began to imagine what his best friend in college, a man by the name of Jacob Eames, would say. See, Jacob Eames had influenced Adonai to reject the faith. And so Adonai said, I'll just wait till morning and maybe things will be better. The very next morning, Adonai went to the innkeeper as he was preparing to leave and was just curious. And so he said, sir, can you tell me about the poor old man in the room next to mine? How is he? The innkeeper said, I'm sorry to tell you that he passed away early this morning. But he wasn't old at all. He was young, probably about your age. And for some reason, Adonai Judson asked, what was his name? The innkeeper looked at him and replied, Jacob Eames. There was no mistaking that Adonai's best friend had gone into eternity in the room next door to him. Needless to say, this began Adonai on a journey back to faith because he thought about what happens. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you know him today? Have you opened the gift of salvation? There's one thing I know in my life is that change, things change quickly. So don't presume. But know the love of God today by faith in Christ. I want to ask you, if you will, to bow your heads with me. This morning as we sing this final hymn, if you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, I'll be at the front and I would be honored to speak with you and to do my best to answer questions about the faith.
Even after we are done today, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart about the love of God and following Him, I'll still be here at the front and we'll be glad to talk with you. Believers celebrate the love of God. I encourage you to go home and to read the latter part of Romans chapter 8 to be reminded of how incredible the love of God is. And that it's His love for us that is our security. Father, thank you for loving us even when we were rebellious and for demonstrating your love in sending Jesus to become human, fully God and fully man, the creator of life, enduring death on a cross for us. So, Father, let your love fill us to overflow so that all those around us will experience it also. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.